God, I want to thank you so much for the privilege tonight of being able to turn our hearts to you, to cry out to you and expect you to speak in great ways. And God, I just pray that even right now, your Holy Spirit would work in such a powerful and in a profound way in each of us. May we be so drawn in and captivated. And God, that that your word would penetrate and overcome and override any lie or anything that we've embraced that is contrary to your scripture. And God, I pray tonight that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we would be drawn in color in the black and white. And may we just get it, God, tonight. May we have so much fun in your word. But Lord, change us and equip us and mold us and shape us and do all those things you intend to do tonight, Lord, we pray. We want to commit this hot, stuffy, muggy night to you and just pray, Lord, that everyone else would leave here so thankful that we came and so thankful for the way you wish to encounter us, Lord, in your word now. So, Lord, just remove the distractions within us and around us. And Lord, let us really just be caught into you and captivated in your word now. Redeem every second, God, I pray. Have your way. Lord, I pray you would immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen. And that you would come upon me, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. That you would speak to each one of us, bespoke a word to each of us. Uniquely that we need to hear tonight as well as corporately as a family. So, Lord, we give you tonight. Say, have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say to you, would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be uh, the authority. Now, a little bit of a time stamp here. It is roughly about 1,000 B.C., so that's roughly 3,000 years ago, when a teenage kid was called out that all we knew was that he was a shepherd kid that followed the sheep. Uh, and one day, contrary to, or I should say, uh, unknown but to anyone else at the time, uh, other than, the, uh, than God and Samuel, he shows up into the town of Bethlehem, or Bethlehem, and there he goes to anoint a new king, a replacement for the king at the time named Shual, or Saul, or sought after. And it is understand the confrontation that Saul had with David prior to this point was something that seemed to be relatively private. Because as, as a matter of fact, what had happened is as Saul starts to demonstrate a heart that is really not consecrated to God, he starts to do things. Well, and this will happen in the moment your heart really doesn't belong to God. It'll start to manifest one way or another. It really doesn't matter, even if you want to try to play it off and, you know, you know you're, you're trying to do the kind of Christianese things and you're trying to, to pray and say your hallelujahs at the right time and hang out at the right places. Just somewhere down the line, if your heart doesn't belong to God, it's just going to start showing. And as it starts to show in, in his case, understand there is a confrontation between the prophet Samuel and this king Saul, where in essence, Samuel is giving Saul his P45. He's giving him, he's firing him. And he says, God has removed the kingdom from you. But understand, he has told Saul now, this is it. Step off the throne. God has removed you. And Saul has no interest in removing himself from the throne. Just like any of us understand something, calling Jesus Savior isn't going to mean squat to you when you stand before God, unless he's really your Lord. And we can bank on this whole Savior thing and understand clearly in Scripture, Jesus is the Savior, but he demands to be Lord. And this is why all of the other religions of the world, in one way or another, seem so appealing. It's because somehow we have this sense of control. 
We feel like we can perform enough and do enough and make enough trips to this thing and do it, give enough and so forth. Or if we're nice enough or if we chant enough or if we sit enough quietly or whatever. But in the end of it all, we still feel like it's our, it's under our control to perform whatever it is we think we want to perform to get there. On the other side of that, there was a God who was desperately in love with you. And it's like if you line up all of these kooks and line up everything that is a possibility for you to believe in and then say, all right, now, which one of these do you want to choose? And then say, now, which one of you actually called me by name? Which one's going to step forward? Which one of you actually lived a perfect life? Step forward. Which one of you willingly was willing to pay my crimes, pay for my crimes that are in my heart, not just the things I've done, but intended and thought and felt? Which one of you volunteered for that? Which one of you was actually willing to want me and want a relationship with me and want to spend eternity with me? And only one can step forward and praise God. In all of those counts, it's the same person. But he demands to be Lord and not just Savior. When we say, well, sure, we want Jesus to save us, but we still want to control our own lives. You're not taking Jesus for who he is. And there's our problem. God has ordained a replacement to Saul, but he has no interest in stepping off the throne. And understand there is a profound moment in 1 Samuel 15 where what happens is, is that Samuel, understand, says, you are done. And as he turns from Saul, Saul lunges for the prophet and grabs the, coat, the, the edge of his, of, his go, of his coat and he tears it. From which then Samuel's able to use the object lesson, which God is quick to do. And he looks and and understand, think about this for this just this moment. For just a moment, there is Saul down on his knees before a prophet. And as he's there, he is holding a piece of a coat. Now, it's not. I mean, if it's a prophet's coat, chances are it's going to be something a bit unique. We don't know that from text here, but we can say this one way or another. He's staring at a piece of ripped cloth for which then Samuel has to stare him in the face and say, hey, you see that? That's what God's done with you. He has torn the kingdom from you. He's not just taken it. He's not just removed it. He's done. See what you just did? That's what God has done to you. And now understand the reason is, is that Saul in his lunging for this thing that he thinks should still be his grabs a hold of this thing and won't let go. And God's like, look at that's what God's doing with this. Now, get that image in your head for a moment. That image where Saul is on his knees staring at a piece of ripped cloth that he should never be holding in his hands. And instead of him at that moment saying, you know what, you're right I'm wrong. What was I thinking? He will ultimately say, I have played the fool. I'm a sinner. I'm wrong. He will ultimately say all of those things, but it won't make a difference. Just admitting something is only part of the way there. But as he holds on to this thing, he says, please, Samuel, come back with me and let's worship before the people. And understand what Saul's trying to do is what every one of us wants to do. He wants to save faith. At those moments when God really wants to do a radical work in your heart and he wants to transform you and clean you and purify you. We are so busy trying not to look stupid and trying not to look foolish that what happens is we'll actually fight God on the very thing that he wants to do for our healing. Sammy's like, no way. Why in the world would I go back with you? Now, 
pardon the grammar for a moment, but understand there's particular, you know, there's nuances in it. But one of the things is that the particular term that Saul uses for worship here is a term that actually is reflexive. In other words, it's something that you do that's for your own benefit. When he wants to worship, this is not a surrender to God. This is not just a bowing before God. It is actually something Saul wants to do for his own benefit, because if he could stand before the people again with Samuel, well, then clearly everyone's going to think he's okay. Samuel finally concedes. He's like, I'm tired of fighting you over it. This is a loose paraphrase. Don't just believe me for Samuel 15. And they finally, they go back together. And as they go back together, that means that this encounter that they had, not everybody saw that. All they saw was somewhere down the line, there was some kind of altercation somewhere. And then Saul and Samuel go back and Saul kind of does his worship thing, which tells me, by the way, just because you do stuff that looks like worship does not mean that God's accepting it or thinking it's good. Because if you have if you don't have a yes in your heart, what kind of worship are we really doing? And to have a yes in our heart, then we have to declare him Lord because we're saying yes to whatever his will is. So please hear me in this. As this is the case, God has anointed this kid now, roughly about 15 years old is what we get, at least from doing the math. And God has told Saul, by the way, God has torn the kingdom from you and given it to a neighbor who is better than you. Saul knows he's got a replacement and he knows him as a guy that's better than him and as a neighbor. That's what he knows. There's the problem. And understand, David didn't volunteer. David didn't fill out a form. David didn't, you know, sign up for something on a sheet somewhere. God just called him. And the moment that God called him, David's life starts to flip upside down or right side up. And now he's going to spend that period of time, that 15 years, he's going to spend that period of time again running for his life from the guy who really has no interest in giving up the throne. That, by the way, is rightfully David's. David is in that running time. He's in that season. And he will be there from a couple of chapters ago all the way through to the end of 1 Samuel. First Samuel will end. I mean, the only way that Saul is going to have to give up the throne, and hear me on this, the only way that Saul is going to give up the throne is he's got to die. And might I just say, much like our own flesh nature, God makes clear in Romans 7 and 8, your flesh nature will never convert. Your flesh nature has no interest in sharing. It's about total domination. It's going to have to die. This me first, my first mindset doesn't work. So hear me on this. This David, this shepherd is also, though, and this is the profound and beautiful part amidst the other things, is that David's a writer. He's a songwriter. And so what we get is we get more than just the account of, well, this is what happens. And David ran and then David ran again. We actually get these songs that are kind of inserted into the life of David that we can throw in these moments and say, listen to David's song. Here's David alone on a harp somewhere. I mean, think of it as a guy fleeing for his life, playing Jason Bourne with a guitar strapped over his back, gets sort of tucked off into some alleyway somewhere, starts strumming his guitar. And here's the song that comes out of it. And we have two of those tonight. David at this point now has gathered 600 men, roughly 600 men who, by the way, were disgruntled. They were in debt. They were completely in a place where they saw they were disillusioned by Saul's empire, by his dynasty. And they were really just they were not into Saul at all. And these are the men that are running with David at this point. So put yourself in this place. But I want to remind you one thing and we'll get into our text. David is in a place where he was a shepherd boy his whole life in the wilderness of Judea and his ministry, if you will, to the sheep was to find places to keep the sheep safe and to keep the sheep fed and to give the sheep water. 
And what David may not have known is that God had been preparing him in those first 15 years for the next 15 years of running. Because what Saul did not have was the lay of the land that David had when he was running from Saul. So he would know where the caves are. And he would know where the streams are. And you understand, sheep are actually goofy animals. They're funny to watch, but they're also in a place where they're actually easily frightened. And they're even frightened by the sound of water that gets too quickly rushing. As a matter of fact, they won't drink of it. So you have to find things that are running so it's not stagnant and nasty, but you also need to find things that aren't running too much because that'll scare them away and they won't drink. So that's where David is. And the last thing we saw is that David had been running. He had been betrayed by people he had actually gone out and rescued with his men. And even in that, they were going to turn him in to Saul, who, of course, has a bounty on his head. And then David has been running on one side of a mountain. Saul's on the other. And Saul goes to go and deal with a perennial enemy of the Philistines. And David's just fleeing and he's exhausted. and He's got his 600 men. And imagine how, how long before you're tired of running. Think about the problems you've had to face where you felt surrounded and you feel like everything is on top of you. Well, complicate that and add to that the idea that everyone's trying to kill you. And you're not just being paranoid. That's actually what's happening. So this is what we read then in chapter 24, verse 1. Now what happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. En Gedi still exists today, of course. It's a place that every time we go to Israel, we hike, and we actually try to hike over the entire hill of it. It is riddled with big, fat, juicy, beautiful caves. But it is also known, of course, for its, for its uh, waterfalls. However, because the area in it sort of dumps and oversees the Dead Sea, because the area is a very flat and dry land, what happens is when the rains come, you've got to flee for your life because waterfalls actually change their location and water and ground just washes out of Israel quite easily in that area. As a matter of fact, on one of our particular trips, we were actually watching the rain come in from Jerusalem. And as it was coming our way from Jerusalem, we had to flee. Had we been there 15 more minutes, we actually would have been caught in something that would have swept us. It was a flash flood that swept away and actually dropped the road more than four meters. That's a very considerable drop. And this is where David is at this moment. So he says again, now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 choice men from all Israel and went to seek him and his men on the rocks of the wild goats, which is a specific area. Well, it, it, En Gedi means wild goats. It's the place of the wild goats. So he went to seek him there. And while Saul is in hot pursuit of David and David is hiding out here in a cave with his men, David writes Psalm 57 that Hugo was going to so beautifully tell us. That's right here. Bro. It's the blue. To the chief musician said to do not destroy a Mitcham of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. 
He shall send he shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would sh- sh- swallow me up. Selah, sorry. Selah, God. Selah. Selah, God shall shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongues a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have they have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the down. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches into the heavens, and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Okay, let me ask you just a couple quick questions as we sort of develop this. The beginning of this section, the beginning of this psalm, happy, sad, at peace, what do you tell me, the beginning of it? Sad. He's freaking out, isn't he? Notice the repetition. Be merciful to me, God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. Now, note in this, by the way, for what it's worth, that he talks about the shadow of God's wings. Do you see that there? It's a common metaphor, and we're going to see it in both of our psalms tonight. But the idea, of course, is are these nervous chicks that are defenseless. They can't even fly, and they go and they seek for shelter underneath the wing of their parent. And David says, that's what I'm doing right now. In the shadow of your wing, I will make my refuge. Now, I want you to notice, by the way, and there's a couple, just a couple quick things in it. Just I don't want you to miss it. I mean, we could talk about that there are 39 psalms David wrote that are chief musician songs. There are David picked different songs that were different melodies. By the way, interestingly, this is going to be one. Notice what's this? What's the song chart that he's handing out to people? Well, you know, it's like jazz charts, but you kind of hand out. Sorry, right, here are the changes. Now I'm going to sing a new sort of lyrics over it. Which particular track is he doing according to this? It's set to what? Do not destroy. Now don't miss that. Because, of course, if we know the story of what's going to happen with David, this is going to be kind of important. It's a michtam. For what it's worth, there are six psalms that are michtams. Michtam means to mar, to cut. Or it actually means to permanently mark. We might think of it as something that tattooed your soul. David certainly uses that in regards to the time he was captured in Gath in 56. He does 16, which is an amazing psalm for that. Here in the cave, when they watched David to kill him in 59, 58, they'll be used as well. When Job had returned from a battle and David is really disgruntled by it in chapters, or in Psalm 60. But David cries out, be merciful to me, which he'll do in 60, 56 and 57. He says, because my soul trusts in you. For means because. Would you please be merciful because my soul, and the word there is the word chasa. Try chasa. Try that word. Chasa. Chasa is the word that is used here when it says my soul trusts in you. For trusts. And in the shadow of your wings I make my Refuge, it's the same word in both cases. The word for trusts and the word for refuge is the same word, chasa. 
what David says. And the, mean, the word means, in essence, to rest in refuge. My soul rests in refuge in you. You're the refuge I can rest in, God. And I remind you, David is running for his life. It was in the shadow of your wings. That's where I'm going to find that refuge until these calamities have passed me by. Notice he says in verse 2 and 3 the things he's going to do. I will cry out. And as he will cry out, then God will send forth. God will send from heaven and God will send forth. And then he starts to state his situation. David has now looked and made a decision about what he's going to do even before he's actually completely aware of what's going to go on. We'll see that here in verses 7 and 9. This is my souls among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire. Now listen, I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire. Who do you think David's speaking about there? Is it Saul's party? Or is it his own? Well, he doesn't lie among Saul's enemy, Saul's party. He's like, his own men are trouble. Their teeth are like spears and arrows, and their tongue is sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above the earth. Now they've prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They've dung a pit. And in the midst of it, they themselves have fallen. Then we have this word, Selah. Selah is going to be repeated here. And it's important to note this word, in its simplest sense, is like this is a musical break because something has just been said that's important enough that you need a little bit of, a little bit of space. We might say letting the beat breathe so that you can actually take time to ponder what's just been said. And it's from that moment where he takes that pause, he says, okay, my heart's steadfast. My heart's steadfast, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing, I'm going to give praise, I'll awaken the dawn, and I'll praise you and I'll sing to you. That's what I'm going to do. And you realize, somewhere in between the two sailors, everything changes. David went from freaking out to a place where he's actually praising him at the end of it. Now, we don't read that somehow in the midst of all this, Saul's about, or David's about to encounter what we read in the text. And to be honest, the reason we could read this and think, wow, David's kind of bipolar because he's at one moment, he's freaking out. And the next moment, he's like super happy. But understand, he's crying out to God and God is responding. And as God is responding, then David is seizing upon what God has said. God's like, look, at, I, at the moment, things look really scary, but I'm trusting your promises. I know you're going to take care of me. So why am I freaking out? And understand, in a moment like that, David recognizes there's two things he can choose to focus on. He's got a clarity of the problem, but he's also got a clarity of the problem solver. And he can't focus on both. And if he focuses on the problem, he's going to continue to freak out. And if he focuses on the problem solver, he's going to be okay. And Isaiah 26.3, it says that you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on you. And this is where David is. He's in a place where his problem is really staring him in the face. And he needs to find God staring him in the face just as much or more so. And that's where David is. So understand, David's in a cave, and he's like, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. My soul trusts in you. In the shadow of your wings, I'll make my refuge until these calamities have passed me by. I'm going to stay here under your wing until I know that even the situations around me are safe. So let's take a look at how that works out in the text. David is in Gedi. He's hiding in a cave. Verse 3. So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave. Saul went to attend to his needs. The old King Jimmy says he went to cover his feet. You're probably aware of what Saul is doing. Saul went to go to the bathroom. 
David and 600 men are hiding in a cave. And they're going, God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. My soul trusts in you. In the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed me by. And all of a sudden, he's like, I hear a noise. I hear a noise. I hear an army. There's 3,000 men. I hear an army. Oh, you guys, hide, hide. Go deeper in the cave. Go deeper in the cave. Go deeper in the cave. And we're all kind of hiding out. We're hiding as dark as we can. And you hear a guy who's like, uh, 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 no, no, it's like I, I could develop it, but this isn't a men's conference. But you can kind of get the idea. Now, there's a part of this that really sticks out to me as a boy. And that's the part where somewhere in all of this, 600 guys are hiding in a cave. And this guy's kind of taking a dump. I mean, he's really going, he's going for it. And the reason I say that is, what part does one of the 600 men not start laughing? I mean, you're freaking out. You're so afraid. And somewhere down the line, Saul's really, he's going for it. And you're deep in the cave. And David's like, please, God, I'm going to hide in the shadow of your wings. Now, what would that be like when you're in a cave that's dark? And I'm like, I need the shadow of your wing, that place where it's dark and safe. And that's where he's at at this moment. And he's like, oh, my goodness. And if you can see the light, you see there's a silhouette of a person coming in. And remember, Saul's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. I go, well, it's clearly Saul. It's like Yao Ming. When the guy walks in the room, you kind of know it. He's bigger than everyone else. And he comes in, and David's like, I am such a goner. Now, which one of us would have thought of 601, including David, that, you know, maybe he's just coming in here to go to the bathroom? None of us would have thought that. And it is amazing how many times everything looks at its absolute bleakest, where something so weird is going to happen in it that you couldn't even believe it. You would, if anyone had told you ahead of time, you wouldn't believe it. Like, for instance... Another Saul in the New Testament, known as a Christian killer and a persecutor, making his way 120 miles north to Damascus with letters to arrest and and persecute and prosecute every person that calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on his way, there are a group of people in Damascus freaking out and praying. What would you pray? God, kill him on the route. God, rip out his eyeballs. Let his arms fall. What would you pray? And imagine while we're all praying because we're Christians and this guy's coming to kill us, one person, imagine Gina stands up in the middle of that and goes, hey, maybe he'll just get saved in the way. And we all be like, oh, shut up. Let's get back to praying something spiritual. Imagine. Because God just loves blowing our minds with doing something so strange. that You go, wow, who would have thought this was God? Peter's thrown in prison. And as he's thrown in prison, there's a gal named Rhoda at the house where a bunch of people are gathered together and pray. The disciples are praying. And imagine, God, release Peter. God, set Peter free. Please, God, anything, just set Peter free. We don't want him dead. And all of a sudden, Peter's released. An angel kind of comes and taps him and says, get up, put on your shoes, let's go. And Peter walks out and he gets to the gate and he's like, oh, now the gate's closed. Like, God's going to take you halfway, right? And then the gate opens up like automatically and Peter walks out and he goes, whoa, this is actually reality. This isn't a dream. So he runs to the house and there is Peter knocking on the door and Rhoda answers the She goes like, who is it? And they're all freaked out because they arrested Peter. They're probably going to arrest us too. And he's like, hey, this is Peter. Let me in. And Rhoda's so excited. She turns out and she goes, God. Peter's out the door. She doesn't let him in. And the best part is the people then turn to her and tell her to shut up. They're like, oh, shut up. You don't need to out of your mind. Don't you realize you're interrupting us? We're praying for Peter's release. Peter's at the door. 
And here we are going, oh, God. So, dude, Rhoda, will you just go sit down? God, we lose Peter. We lose Peter. Peter's at the door. We lose Peter. God, please. No, that can't be him. We're praying. I mean, is that what we're doing? Can you imagine how funny that must look to God? And David's in this place now where he's been hiding with his men. And Saul comes in and you think, I am such a dead man. And then Saul turns his back on them. And then drops his rope. And you're like, okay, that's something I never wanted to see. But remember how David said he was among lions? Look at verse 4. Then the men and David said to him, This is the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do what seems good to you. And David arose secretly and cut off the corner of Saul's robe, which tells me that Saul must have put his robe quite a distance from where he was uh, tending to his needs. It happened afterwards, David's heart was troubled because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to the men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his, notice there, his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. Now Saul may have brought 3,000 men, but it was just one pooping Saul and 601 guys. Saul doesn't stand a chance. But David restrained his servants with these words. He did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and he went on his way. Could you imagine the look that David got from his servants? They were all like, you just took, you lost the golden opportunity to kill this guy. Now, if you're familiar with the story and you're familiar with David's account, at the end of David's life, he says something really peculiar. 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-five, he says, The Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eye. This is what he'll write in his psalm, Psalm 18, verse 20. And then reiterate it four verses later. You think, David, the end of your life, there's, uh, have you forgotten about the Bathsheba incident? Have you forgotten about killing her husband? I mean, your life's kind of riddled with some serious issues here. So how could David say this? Because David could look back his entire life at how he got the throne and never have to regret it. David said, well, that's one thing I did right. I could have killed Saul. He'll have more than one opportunity. But I only took what God gave me. And I'm going to let God have that room. But please hear me in this. There's a story, and maybe you're familiar with it, in the book of Genesis of two twin brothers. Although they don't really look much like twins. I'm assuming they're paternal. One, well, he's a man of the kitchens. So I don't know what image that paints in your head, but we'll get the idea of somebody that isn't necessarily somebody who's sort of bench-pressing a smart car. On the other side of it is a guy that they nick him, that he gets the names Red and Harry. So I guess you can get an image of that. Daniel falls into some hydrogen peroxide. He's covered in red hair. And, and what we read, and he was a hunter. 
And it's actually, it makes a lot of sense because the guy, he's covered in hair so much because what we're going to find is that his brother dresses up in animal skins. This is a hairy brother if his dad thinks that that's Daniel or Esau. And understand, it's like, what a better guy to hunt than this guy? Because, you know, it's like the animals are kind of all hanging out in the wilderness and they're like, what's that? I don't know. It's one of us. You know, and then it's like, Esau's like, oh, and he kills him. You wouldn't know it. What perfect camouflage. He looked like them. Look like I, I kind of picture like one of those Highland sheep, you know, those those Highland cows, and the ones that kind of look like hippie cows. Well, I mean, that's kind of the idea here. And the reason I say that is, is that somewhere in it, dad kind of prefers, yeah, the manly son. And, and it even tells us why, because that guy actually knew how to barbecue. He could bring back the food and, and barbecue it. You know, it's like maybe like Jacob's making like pies, you know, and dad's like, go on and give me something I have to chew, you know, and he really, and he prefers, but God had given a promise to Jacob that Jacob would be the one that would be favored by God. He would be the one to receive the birthright. But dad's not interested in that. He wants to make sure the lineage is followed by a manly man. You know, the kind of guy that pulls out his wisdom teeth with a piece of broken glass and a bottle of Jim Beam. And this is kind of the idea, right? Somebody, you know, I want to see some guys got some scars. And the reason I say that is, is that dad has gotten so old to the point where he's blind and Jacob now is going to rip his dad off. Jacob, by the way, he'll catch her his name. And what it means in the simplest sense is rip off. Sneaky, rotten thief. Con artist. So Jacob now has to just, he has to put his, and, and mom's helping, by the way. She's no help in this. And he puts on his brother's stinky clothes. And then he wraps his arms in the back of his neck in animal fur, goat fur. Which tells you, man, Esau was a hairy boy. And, you know, and dad's kind of, you know, and he imagines he's like, hi, dad. I mean, mm, hi, dad, you know. And dad's like, wow, you kind of sound like Jacob. Oh, no, I'm Esau. Give me the blessing, dad. Give me the blessing. Here's my barbecue. You know, and dad puts his, and he's like, oh, no, no, man. You kind of sound a little bit like my other son. He's like, come here for a second. Hey, son, come here. And he's like, oh, and he touches the back of his neck and his arms. And he's like, well, you kind of feel like Esau. And then he kind of gives him a sniff. And, oh, yeah, you smell like Esau. He says, you smell like the fields. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in fields where a lot of animals are. If you've ever been, like, at a dairy farm, if, if Esau smelled like that, it's amazing that boy ever got married. Anyway, but so dad then, he puts, the, puts his hand on him and he blesses him, thinking he's Esau, but he's now transferring the blessing over to, to Jacob. Which, by the way, I remind you, God promised Jacob he'd get the blessing. Here's the problem. You'd say, well, hey, it all worked out in the end, right? Jacob got the blessing. See, but Jacob never got the privilege of being able to tell his children how God did it. It wasn't like, let me tell you how God stepped in. And this is the problem when we try to help God out. When God didn't tell us to do something, but rather we're like, oh, it isn't working out, so you know what I'm going to need to do? Call in the maidservant. Let's have a kid do that. I mean, it's amazing how we try to get God a little bit of help as if somehow God's like stuck in neutral, and we're just kind of, you know, let me kind of help get that clutch down so we can get that car rolling. And understand what God's doing here. He's like, if you want to try to help me out, you're going to get in this place where you're never going to be able to say, let me tell you what God did to make this happen. And David here is in this situation in this cave where he could have done this. He could been like, you know what happened? Saul came in and I whacked him. But the problem is then David will live the rest of his life fearing the guy that's going to whack him. Instead of going, you know what? God put him in this place. And even though God told me I'm going to be king, he didn't tell me it was going to be today or next Tuesday for that matter. He just said, you're going to be. So I can't do this. This is God's job to do this. And please hear me. 
in your own life, in the fight of God's lordship, in the throne of your own heart. You can will it, but in the end of it all, let God do it through the power of his spirit. Because if you just try to do it with some kind of program or you just read a book and you know, oh, these are the six steps I need to take, but you're not actually giving God the space to do what he needs to do to make it happen, you may get some results, but you'll kick up a lot of dust. You just won't move any mountains. So in our situation here, David now has told him that, but now here's the situation. Saul now has successfully relieved himself and he's left coat and all a bit unaware of the fact that his coat's missing a patch from it that David had cut off, I remind you. So at this point, Saul has left the cave and he went on his way. Verse 8. David arose afterwards, went out of the cave and called out to Saul. Now imagine how surprised Saul would be. Saul's kind of walking away from the cave. He's like, boy, I'm glad I left that in there. And all of a sudden, out of the cave starts, comes a voice. David comes running out and he says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And I'm sure this is why David left the cave. Because David wasn't going to be in the cave stooping with his face to the ground because it was pretty dangerous territory. So David left the cave. He gets on his face and he shows submission to a guy that is actually in rebellion. And this is something God actually here, if you will, parades before us to see. You know, there are people who actually think that what we should do is just we, if we disagree with the government, we should just gather arms and just make, it, make them miserable. Scripture says the only time we are ever to disobey the governing authorities is when they demand that we sin, not when they allow it. And if the only hill we die on is the one where they say, you have to do this, but God tells you you can't, it'll mean something. If we just disagree with them and we just want to be anarchists, well, obviously the government's going to have problems with us. Might I say it this way? Respect the chair. Pray for the person who sits in it. When Paul tells us to submit to governing authorities, he's writing that to the Romans. And I guarantee you, the Romans were infinitely worse than the government we have. So it isn't like, well, they didn't understand our government. <laughs> you should have seen theirs. David bows down. In verse 9, it says, David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of the men who say David seeks your harm? Look. This day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. Someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord. He's the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For I, in that I cut off the corner of your robe, I did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. Now, I want you to consider how profound this moment is. David is on his knees, and he is holding up a piece of a torn robe. And I wonder if in that moment, Saul flashes back, not that long ago, when it was Saul on his knees, with a piece of torn robe, and it was Samuel saying to him, the Lord has taken the kingdom and torn it from you and given it to someone better than you, Saul. Because it would be very easy dots to connect as far as I can see. And imagine Saul looking at this and as David is up before him on his knees and going, look at this. And here's the difference. Saul, what Saul was lunging for, David, on the other hand, was sparing 
Now, hear this text, because it's a rough one to hear. It's a very jagged pill to swallow. But in First Peter, and by the way, if you're ever in a place where you're really feeling persecuted, the Peter letters are so good for that. First Peter is about people getting persecuted from outside the church. And what he does is he shows us what is temporary and what is permanent, and it really helps us to endure those hard times. On the other side of it, Second Peter deals with those that are being persecuted from within the church, from lunatics and crazy people that are actually, in the simplest sense, false teachers, false prophets, for which he actually brings us to the actual end of the world and shows us that we're all going to stand before God and it's supposed, it'll give us the strength to endure. But in First Peter, this is what he says, and listen closely because there's a question to be asked here. For to this, this is First Peter one twenty one or two, sorry, First Peter two twenty one. For to this you were called, because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Who, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me ask you, and I'll read these first two verses again. This is First Peter 2, 21 and 22. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. According to that verse alone, what are you called to do? You're called to suffer. You say, I don't like that. Why would I be called to suffer? Because it's in our suffering that people actually see how different Jesus is from everything else. It's not in our greatest pleasures and in our greatest bounties, because to be honest, even Satan brought that accusation against Job. It's in the moments when actually... The storm hits both houses that when yours stands and theirs doesn't, they see there's a difference. The problem is we would never volunteer for the storm. But God really wants them saved. And the storm, if the storm is to save them, is it worth it? In this situation here, David clearly at this point has been in a place where he sees how foolish it is to try to get what God would want to give him. And you try to connive to get what God would want to give him for free. But David is going to suffer. In verse 12, it says, let the Lord judge between you and me. Let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall still not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, and this is a brilliant proverb, but maybe which one of you haven't said something like this? Wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Yeah, that's a pretty simple one. But my hand shall not be against you. In other words, hey, look at What's pretty evident is sooner or later, if it's wicked, it's going to bear the fruit of wickedness, which, by the way, is clearly the story of Saul as well here. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore, let the Lord judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Understand, he's like, look, at this is God's job. This isn't mine. The problem is, if it's God's job, you've got to wait for him to do it. And if you have to wait for him, have you learned he never shows up early? And that is part of the problem. I'd really love for the moment I get discomforted for the Lord just to show up and, here I come to save the day. The problem is, is that sometimes, well, what that means is that the moment that it gets cloudy, God removes it before the storm ever really comes. 
So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me with good, whereas I've rewarded you with evil. And as you have shown this day how you have dealt well with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you would not kill me. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely, get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And here is Saul's declaration. And I and now I know indeed that you shall surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. What did it take for David to do exactly what Jesus we read? And that was when he was abused, he didn't threaten. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. But it wasn't just that he didn't do anything, but rather this. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. It isn't about sucking it in. It's about handing it over. Because if somebody does that, you'll become passive aggressive, right? What happens is you kind of suck it in. Well, I shouldn't fire back. And then sooner or later, you just can't handle it. And then like the volcano explodes over something that really shouldn't have been in any manner worthy of that type of retribution. Understand. If you don't hand it over, it's going to accrue interest inside of you, fester and explode. So Saul says, you know what? You're right. You're more righteous than I. And I remind you, God had said he'd torn the kingdom from you and given it to someone better than you. And Saul says, you know what? Clearly, you're the guy. And you know, now I know that you will surely be king. And that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, would you please do this? And if you realize, Saul's asking David for a favor. David just spared his life, I remind you. He says, therefore, swear to me now by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. David, by the way, will take this seriously. I remind you, Saul's son is David's best friend. His name is Jonathan, but Jonathan has a son, lame, by the way, dropped as they were fleeing the house. His name is Mephibosheth. I do like this name, Uh, you know. I think we should actually suggest, like the Chungs have a baby named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth means exterminate the idols. It's a great name. Exterminate the idols, Chung. Well, anyway. And what he says is, hey, look at, you know, if you were to take over the throne from another family, the tradition is you kill everyone in their family so no one rises up to try to cause trouble and try to claim the throne back. We're actually going to see that, by the way, with one of Saul's descendants. David swore to Saul. Saul went home, but David and his men went up to live in the stronghold, went up to the stronghold. And David, I remind you now, is in the wilderness of Judea. He has been running for his life. David, what we're going to find in the next chapter is that David's going to hit a real rough patch. How does a guy who does something this good really lose it in the next chapter? Well, that's what we're going to get next week. But I'd like to give you a psalm that we actually are going to look at probably more than once. And that's Psalm 63. And Bruno is going to read it to you. Psalm of David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you 
in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands to your name. My soul shall be satisfied with, as, as with marrow and fatness and my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night's watches, in the night's watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Let me ask you something. What did David call himself in this psalm? What's that? What did David call himself in this psalm? Look at verse 11. The king. Isn't that an interesting thing for David to call himself at a moment like this? One quick note on this. and we'll be, Obviously, this is, you know, there's certain psalms that at a moment or songs that you write and at a moment it really documents that moment in time. And then there are other particular ones that just become kind of, if you will, the anthem of a season. And I wonder how many times David sang this song as he was running through the wilderness of Judea. This is the thing that kind of stands out. And there's a lot that we can draw from this, but it's just this one thing I want to kind of bring to light for a moment. We'll get to the cross and we'll get home. Back in our first psalm, David talked about the shadow of God's wings. Do you remember what David said about the shadow of God's wings in that first psalm? What would David do with the shadow of God's wings? In Psalm 57, it tells us, in the shadow of God's wings, he would make his refuge. I'm going to go hide there. What does it tell us about the shadow of God's wings in this one? He will rejoice. Do you notice David went from in the shadow of your wings, I'm going to go find refuge, to the shadow of your wings, I'm going to rejoice. And what God has done in between, in the simplest sense, has even had David's enemy confess that David really was the man that God had called. You know, it tells us that we are to live such lives that even those who are opponents of us will have nothing evil to say to us or of us. Jesus promised that he would make those who stood against us bow down before us and declare that we were right with him, with the Lord. Hear me in this. David's example, of course, is the forerunner for the greatest of all people who would walk the earth, God in the flesh, the son of David, Jesus. And what David shows us in this is though he was rightful king, he wasn't just going to go and take matters into his own hands in such a way that he was just going to go and go violent and go, you know, rush out on everyone. But rather what he was going to do was he was going to do it the way that was right. Well, the way that was right for Jesus, as we're aware of, is the fact that our debt had to be paid. 
If Gina had done something foolish, got herself in a situation where she had loaned money to a loan shark, and that family was a mafia family, and Gina and then, of course, they started, you know, I'll be honest, though, the, uh, in Chicago, the, peop- the, the interest rates of a loan shark were less, in many cases, than credit cards are here. I'm actually quite shocked. I saw it was like 39% APR, and I thought, wow, I'd have been better off in Chicago getting from Lefty, uh, Lefty Louie. Anyways, but, uh, you know, let me tell you what you better pay up, though. Yeah. Consider this. The genie's in a place where she owes the money, and there's a guy that's coming after her to break her knuckles if she can't pay. And Bruno, trying to be a decent brother to Gina, says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go over there, and I'm going to go take care of that guy for you, all right? And so he goes, and he kills the guy. He goes, and then he throws him in a dumpster somewhere. And, you know, and Bruno's like, what? What guy? I don't know what you're talking about. The problem is, is that Gina still owes. Even though somebody has gone after her, just taking that guy down doesn't stop the fact that Gina owes. Now, consider this. In regards to our guilt, who do we owe? We don't owe the devil. We owe God. Our guilt makes us debtors to God because it's our sin that makes us owe God that unrighteousness. All of that sin makes us guilty before God, not before the devil. If Jesus just kind of came in and just destroyed the devil, we'd still owe God. It wouldn't solve our problem. And this is another thing that makes Jesus unique from everything else. Even if some other religion or idealism or mindset somehow when it decides they're going to wave, you know, all right, well, I'll tell you what, we'll just let you in anyways. The problem is it's still not righteous because your, your guilt has never been paid. Your debt's never been counted for. And yet in Scripture, what God tells us is that God allowed one provision. If there was a debt to be paid and somebody completely innocent stepped in your route and actually was willing in volunteering by their own volition, to pay the price for you, God would accept that offer. Which disqualifies me from you and you from me, because we all owe. We're all sinners. Enter God in the flesh, Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, the Son of David, who would step in. And though he had every power within him to rip the arms off of the person who was nailing his to the cross, though he had the power with him in every way to rip the head off of the guy who would be putting the crown of thorns on his own, He didn't, because even if he had done all of that, our debt wouldn't be paid. And Buddha, Muhammad, Paramahansa, Yogananda, any of these guys, no matter who they are, be them blue-faced, red-faced, green-faced, or otherwise, no one paid the price but Jesus. And that's why I choose. And the Bible tells us that not only did Jesus pay the price, but God did want to step beyond that to say, well, how do we know it was enough? How do we know when Jesus said, Tetelestai, it is finished, that he really meant it was done, it was paid in full? Well, God had set something up in motion for 1,400 years before Jesus came at a day called Yom Kippur, when the high priest offered a sacrifice for sin, but if he or the sacrifice were improper and unright, we knew it because the priest died in service. It was simple. He went into the Holy of Holies, and if it was accepted, it's just simple. He came out alive again. That's pretty simple. So it would make perfect sense to me that my high priest, when he went and paid for my sin and yours, and brought it before the Father, and he took it to the grave, well, the only way to really prove that it was accepted was for him to come out alive again. And God had set that up so we would know, surely this price was paid. Now, the other guys, they're still in their graves if they ever came at all. But Jesus actually paid the price, volunteered, was perfect, so he qualified to pay the price, and then came out alive again. 
and demands not to be one of your options, because if he's one of the options, you still retain the throne yourself to pick and choose like you're at a buffet. He demands the throne. But the Bible tells us if we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Though he's paid the bill, the only thing left is willing to be willing to accept him on his terms for the price that's been paid. Paul tells the Corinthians, you were bought at a price. You're not your own. Glorify God with that body he gave you. Now here's the thing as we go to prayer. And Daniel, go ahead and close the door if you would, please. As we go to prayer, have you said yes to Jesus? And I'm not asking, have you said yes to Jesus to save you? Have you said yes to Jesus because he was, he, you don't want to go to hell? I'm just asking as we go to prayer now, have you said yes to Jesus to say, you know what? I give up all my other gods, all my other things that I think are options, all my other back doors. And now that you're Lord of all or you're not Lord at all. And you demand for me to hand you my life. Because you're going to rebuild it into something brand new. The question is, am I really willing to say yes? Have you said yes to that? So we're going to take a moment quietly. And then after that, we're going to pray. And maybe you have said yes to Jesus. And maybe in the season you've been in, you've been really trying to take back that throne. You've been really trying to tell God maybe he needs your help in something or you're tired of waiting. And you feel like there's enough duress to feel like you've got a right to do something stupid. Tonight in this room, God would want us walking out of here, not just saying in the shed of your wings I'll find my refuge, but in the shed of your wings I'll rejoice. And that can only happen if we let God take the throne he deserves. We'll get quiet and then we'll pray. Will you take that moment and be quiet with me? God in heaven, you've made clear in Scripture that your son Jesus was in the garden, the garden of the olive press, Gethsemane. And there he fell to his knees and he prayed, Father, if there is any other way. Let this cup pass from before me. And what seems very clear and evident is that you provided no other way. And therefore the cup was unavoidable, inevitable and eminent to my Savior. Father in heaven, your Son, tempted in every way yet without sin, the perfect sacrifice... was willing in complete submission to your will, be tortured, killed and buried, that he would give his life as an offering and as a ransom payment for all of us. And here in this room, God, we would love the idea of you just giving us stuff. 
giving us your grace in a way that is so that we could just be loved and adopted and cared for. That we could in all of this experience your kindness, your loving kindness, your peace, your joy. But somehow and we'd still want to assume that we are still rightfully the gatekeepers to our own destinies. As if you become then the great biblical bellhop or concierge instead of being the Christ, the Lord, Jesus. Then I recognize your Holy Spirit's working on us right now because it's so hard to hand that over. But we do not want to be fools who stand with a piece of code in our hands recognizing that you'd given us and offered us so much more, but we were unwilling to let it go. So tonight, here in this room, I just want to declare Jesus as my Lord. Not just as my Savior, and not just as a ransom payment, though you are those things, Jesus, but beyond all of that, the one who is the rightful architect to my reinvention, the rightful overseer to my reconstruction. I give you my life. And I know that may mean that there will be storms that will hit. And some storms, Lord, I know you calm them, and others you just calm your children in them. God, I just want to trust that no matter what the case is, as I follow you, the house is going to stand. I can't fear a storm that the house will stand in. And I just want to trust you in that. To not just say, God, take away the storms, but rather, God, let me stand in them. That when the other houses fall, they'll turn for refuge where I have found mine in your wings. But Lord, there in that shadow, knowing my safety, I rejoice. So have proper lordship of my life. I give you the throne that was never mine to sit on. I say, now reinvent me as you wish. Make me the masterpiece you've designed for me to be. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayer tonight. Cement that conviction in us, Lord, we pray. And make this night your night. Let us wake up tomorrow new, vibrant, energetic in such a way, expectant and just rife with hope of the great work that you are routing in each of us. And I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to serve you another day in your word. Be blessed and exalted in that, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.